The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So it's uh, particularly wonderful for me to be back here. Uh, It's been a number of years since I've uh, been at IMC teaching. Um, And it was very sweet, you know, because I... um, uh, one of my good friends, um, uh, Peter Medina, some of you might know him, died last year. And um, over 20 years ago, he um, he was a monk in Asia, <clears throat> and he um, gave IMC his clock, his travel clock, you know. And and so it's still here. <laughs> it survived all the modernization and improvements, and it's still here. So it's kind of sweet to see that. Um, uh, so um, I'll start with um, a metaphor that uh, really uh, helped me in my early practice, um, which was the metaphor of the snow globe. Uh, you know, when you shake a snow globe, um, you know, all the snow just, uh, you know, is all over. You can barely see anything inside it. But if you just let it settle, it just kind of very gently, eventually it settles down. And uh, that image was very helpful for t- me in my early meditation. You know, I'd sit down and my mind would be so chaotic. There's so much happening. But just thinking of the snow globe was like, okay, okay, I just have to sit here and in time it will settle. And uh, for, wh- for quite a while, that was like a really helpful p- piece of my practice, that patience of just, okay, it will settle. Uh, but at a certain point... Um, um, I realized that I was thinking of those first 15, 20 minutes that it took me to settle as not really being part of my meditation. And so I just kind of sat down, and it was just like, okay, I'll think about whatever I want, an occasional breath. And I started really taking it for granted and and just assuming that that was just kind of, you know, this part of my mind wasn't even worth paying attention to. It was so uh, so irrelevant. And um, as I started learning more of the subtleties of practice, I began to really understand uh, that my thinking, this thinking, messy mind, is what's here right now. And that that first 15, 20 minutes of lots of messiness and chaotic thinking and busy and restless uh, was really worthwhile to pay attention to. Uh, that um, it was a very rich part of my practice. And I found that no matter how restless and agitated my mind was in that time, that by becoming mindfully aware of it, I could there would be a little bit of space around it. There was the agitation, and there was that little bit of sweet space. And, um, you know, and I recognized that that agitation, it was unpleasant, you know, and so I was trying to avoid it. I didn't want to feel that agitation. I was, you know, really not liking the the how my mind felt at those times. So I just started folding all of that into my practice, so that um, my practice is just as rich whether my mind is uh, busy or my mind is still. It's still just as close and intimate as, uh, regardless of the state of the mind. You know, the practice teaches us to um, 
to show up for any mind state, whether we like it or judge it as uh, not interesting. So um, I wanted to talk about three kind of related mental states uh, that arise commonly in meditation. And... um, and because they're kind of um, they're related because we tend to not find them all that compelling to pay attention to. And uh, they're um, impatience, boredom, and complacency. And all of those are kind of these kind of subtle states like we tend to like to, you know, if you've got a strong emotion in meditation, oh, that's really juicy, that's really interesting. Um, oh, a fantasy. Oh, yeah, I've been, you know, it's, it's very strong, very compelling. But these uh, states of, um, or even physical pain, we can get very interested in, you know, trying to fix it, trying, trying to, you know, there's a lot to grab onto, a lot to, to engage with. But boredom, impatience, complacency, they're all mental states that we tend to not like. We don't like them, but we don't hate them enough to pay attention to them. Um, so, um, so they tend to kind of go under the ra- radar. Um, you know, for instance, um, did any of you, um, you know, maybe not today, maybe on rare occasion, uh, are kind of waiting for the bell to ring? You know, um, I've met very few people who haven't had that experience at least once. Um, when I was, um, for, for a long time in practice, you know, I used to um, uh, keep a clock in front of me, you know, and, and I'd also have a, 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 a timer that would go off, so I didn't really need the clock. The timer did its job, but um, I would just open my eyes and peek, you know, and, um, you know, if there was 15 minutes, I, I'd like, oh, 15 more minutes, you know, and, and you know, the idea... I, the idea that there was 15 more minutes was unpleasant, more unpleasant than the moment itself, the idea of 15 more minutes. And, you know, so I'd get really involved in my impatient thoughts. I'd get very engaged, like, okay, so 15 more minutes, that's 150 breaths. You know, I, <laughs> I'd negotiate my way through it, you know, totally involved, you know, much more interested, interesting at the moment. Um, but then if it was like five minutes, you know, my whole heart would lift. It's like, oh, only five more minutes, great. And suddenly I'd settle. My mind would settle and would actually enjoy my meditation. And I could go longer, you know, because the idea of all this long time period of, of possible not, not enjoying it, you know, was uh, uh, got in the way, you know, and... Um, so these are the games we play because we don't like that feeling of the impatient mind. It's just a slight unpleasantness, right? Nothing's that terrible. Nothing's that awful at that time. It's just a slight low-level unpleasantness. Um, but I find it really interesting um, that the um, English word for patience comes from the Latin word pati which means to suffer. And it means to suffer with, um, you know, the definition is um, delay, difficulty, and annoyance. 
You know, so it's the ability to, to suffer with, to feel the pain of delay. You know, uh, have you felt, you know, waiting in traffic? You know, uh, impatience arises, right? Waiting in line, impatience arises. You know, that ability to be with that, with patience. Um, you know, with annoyance, with, with, you know, somebody who's just nonstop talking. You know, and you, you know, they're annoying, uh, annoying us, right? And, you know, the ability to be patient with that, um, the ability to be with difficult things. Um, when, when we're feeling impatient, what's really helpful is to realize that there's something in our experience we're resisting. We're actually resisting. There's actually aversion when we're feeling that impatience. I don't want something. And so the practice calls on us to turn towards it. How does impatience feel in the body? You know, maybe you feel, you know, maybe the body's tense. Maybe the body's relaxed. Maybe part of the body is tense. You know, shoulders are up, the face, uh, different parts. How's the belly when we're feeling impatience? Um, or how does the mind, what is impatient, the flavor of the mind? I don't know, do you know what I mean by the flavor? You know, like how do we know the difference between this is anger and this is fear? You know, this is love? You know, it's a flavor of the mind. And so what is the flavor of the impatient mind? How does that actually feel? You know, so we turn our attention to the actual felt experience of the moment, the actual felt experience of impatience. <clears throat> With patience, you know, when we're practicing patience, you know, patience is uh, considered one of the most um, really important qualities to develop in practice. Um, you know, in, uh, in the Buddhist teachings, you know, many of you are familiar with the Ten Paramis, um, the ten perfections, the qualities that we have to develop to wake up, you know, such as virtue, patience, loving kindness, you know, energy, uh, wisdom, you know, all these wonderful qualities that we develop. Uh, but patience is a particularly uh, interesting one because um, I think Gil is the one who told me this. He he actually, you know, once we got uh, digitized digitized versions of the suttas, he counted how many times the word patience appeared in the Majjhima compared to the other parmis. I guess he had a lot of time in his hands but, um, that day. But, um, you know, so it's like, it's that, that commonly the Buddha, you know, said how essential patience is to wake up. Now, patience is only needed when there's something happening that we don't want you know when there's nothing if we're not resisting anything patience is no longer needed it, it no longer takes effort um, and so there's always something going on that we don't want to see we don't want to know we don't want it to be there we're pushing something away um, you know one kind of patience is patient perseverance and that's, for instance, um, 
we can persevere in, tr- let's say we're training for a marathon. I don't know if you've ever trained for something that, that you're really trying to get really good at, you know, and, and so every day you go out there regardless of how you feel, regardless of how you feel. And you can do that with the attitude of gritting your teeth. You know, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do this, and, and you can do it. Or you can do that with a relaxed attitude. You know, oh, um, you know, I'll show up every day, but you can be very relaxed. They both get to the goal. You know, but the difference is, is an attitude of kindness, you know, and uh, how happy we are, you know, how, how at ease we are. And uh, with almost anything we do, uh, bringing in kindness, the quality of kindness is what makes uh, uh, patience really possible the real patience, persevering patience. It has to be with the softness, with the kindness. You know, and sometimes meditation is difficult. It is unpleasant. You know, and we can appreciate that this is hard sometimes. Sometimes it is hard. And, and uh, when things are painful and hard, uh, kindness is appropriate, you know. It's, it's like we uh, bring that into our, our space, you know. Oh, yeah, this is, I'm suffering here. This is hard. You know, my body's uncomfortable. I'm in pain. I just, uh, I don't like doing this. I don't, you know, at this moment, this, this moment I don't like, you know. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm suffering here. I can bring kindness and compassion to that moment. It's a couple of things, you know, sometimes when we're feeling that way, it's hard to put our arms around it. We may have kind of an intellectual understanding of it. So it can help to just remember that the first part of working with this impatient state is to recognize it. Just recognize that it's there. That already gives us a little bit of objectivity. Oh, it's just impatience. It's only impatience. It's just something that comes and goes. You know, and then we turn to our bodies. You know, this is impatience in the body. And we start getting interested in what is it really like? What is it like to be impatient? Um, sometimes uh, focusing on a bigger picture can be really helpful. Uh, sometimes that directness um, doesn't quite work for us. And for instance... Um, uh, we can be stuck in, in gridlock, for instance, and um, we can, instead of being all caught up in, oh, my, how much longer, and, and this is going to take forever, and all those kind of thoughts, you know, oh, what a great opportunity to practice. You know, we sometimes go, oh, I only have half an hour here, I'm going to sneak it in. No, this is a great time to practice. Um, you know, or if, if you feel tight, you know, you can bring um, loving kindness into, into your space. I know uh, people, uh, some people who make it a habit, whenever they're stuck, even at a red light, they just like and look around and do loving kindness towards the people they see in the other cars. You know, it's this very sweet thing to do. It makes it a, a kind of a joyous, uh, a, a joyous thing to, to happen. Um, you know, or you can just settle into just a med- meditating, just watching the breath, open-eyed. You know, just just 
just want to make sure I say that. <laughs> I gave um, uh, walking instructions once, you know, and um, and at the end of the walking instructions, I sent people out to go for their walk, and one of the young men said, um, "Do we do this with our eyes closed?" <laughs> it didn't never occur to me. <laughs> um, you know, um, and one of the things said to me, it's always a go-to when I'm suffering, is humor. Um, like Jack Cornfield used to say, I'll be the first meditator to die of impatience. Yeah. And um, I would just think of that, you know, and it would just kind of, you know, break, break a little bit of my serious, seriousness out. Um, uh, there's a cartoon, you know, in, it was in the New Yorker a long time ago. And, um, you know, you see this group of meditators and, um, you know, the teacher's sitting in a podium just like this. And, you know, there's like a poster, you know, it says journey to enlightenment, you know, and then they have a little thought bubble. One of the medita- I mean, voice bubble. One of the meditators whispers to another one. Are we there yet? <laughs> um, so um, a little bit of humor. So a a kind of close relative of impatience is boredom. Um, Boredom, if you haven't noticed, is a state none of us like. We don't like to be bored. And if we look at boredom a little bit more closely, we see that often what's happening is that the mind has very little stimulation going on. You know, if we're in pain, we're not bored. We may not like it, but we're definitely not bored. Um, but in boredom, there's just very low stimulation. Now, in daily life, in, norm- in regular life, usually when we're bored, we either go to sleep or we go do something different. You know, we stimulate ourselves. And um, as we get calm, the mind begins to get calm, uh, it stops stimulating itself so much with all this thinking, all this going on. And uh, we initially, that calmness, um, it's a little bit unfamiliar, it's, it's not what we're used to during the day, and it can feel really boring. You know, they're, they're, is this it? I mean, you know, I've been meditating, and is this it? Just this, yeah, a little bit of calm, but hey, you know, this isn't fun, you know. Um, and so... Uh, you know, so there's a little bit of something unpleasant, not enough, something going on in that state. And again, um, we can turn our attention right to the boredom. We can get interested in the boredom. What is boredom really like? What is it really like? You know, what is it like? In, what's the flavor of the mind that we don't like? What is that flavor? You know, really notice how, what that feels like. What does it feel like in the body? Sometimes it's actually, there's actually other things going on underneath. But it's not thinking about it and figuring it out. It's like really seeing, what is this moment really like? What am I resisting? What don't I like? What am I pushing away? Um, I read somewhere, I don't know where they get these statistics, but... Um, of Americans um, wonder if heaven will be boring. (laughs) Um, Now, what's interesting about it is that um, 
you know, when we think of heaven, we think of everybody being good and everybody being nice, you know. And, you know, it says something that we think that everybody being good and everybody being nice is boring. <laughs> you know, so we look, all we have to do is look at our entertainment and, you know, we're... Um, what sells the most are horror movies, uh, war movies, violent uh, thrillers, all these uh, things that aren't good and nice, you know. Um, and so even a lot of humor is about, you know, you think about um, uh, slapstick, you know, people are falling, you know. Uh, uh, a lot of humor is put down humor, laughing at pain or laughing at other people's pain. You know, it's, um, so there's something about all those things that are very stimulating to the mind. And the mind really likes being stimulated. And uh, boy, no devices really stimulate us. We prefer, a lot of us prefer doom scrolling, looking at bad news after bad news after bad news for long periods of times over being bored. Or that terrible, horrible feeling of being bored. Let me look at how horrible the disasters in the world are. They're so much more stimulating than being bored. So it's really interesting, you know, to look at at these aspects of mind. So we're used to, um, you know, either stimulating ourselves externally, you know, by the, um, we can do it, um, as I mentioned, you know, in unskillful ways, watching things that are actually dark in our minds. Um, or we can um, stimulate ourselves externally with wholesome things, you know, watching a movie that, that has a lot of depth, reading a biography that connects us with people, listening to wonderful music, having a uh, meeting with friends. There's lots of wonderful stimuli out in the world, going out into nature, going hiking. Um, there's a lot of wholesome things. It's not... Um, I'm not pointing at being wrong to stimulate the mind. You know, that's how we learn. That's how we grow. Um, you know, it's really great for the cognitive mind to stimulate it in ways that are productive. Um, but we also stimulate the mind internally. And how do we do that? You know, um, we can stimulate the mind internally with planning, you know, which can be really useful. Or it can be compulsively uh, uh, done in a medit- during meditation in particular. Uh, sometimes, especially in retreat, I found myself like planning uh, what I was going to say to the teacher when I met with them over and over and over again, and just kind of rehearsing. You know, this is what I'm going to say to them, and and um, you know, and totally missing out on my process, just planning, planning, planning. Um, so, so we do stimulate ourselves internally, um, and because we like stimulus. Um, <clears throat> sometimes, just to avoid feeling boredom, we'd rather um, we'll stimulate ourselves with really uh, thoughts that upset us even more, because we'd rather have upsetting thoughts than um, uh, than be bored. Um, one of the things that happens, you know, with um, 
giving something attention, when we become attentive of the mind, energy arises. When energy arises, kind of interest follows. Um, And so we, um, by turning our attention to boredom, that we bring energy to it and we bring interest and or the quality of or beingness kind of increases in its uh, um, in its energy and its aliveness we start getting connected with ourselves just by giving attention just an open attention to what's really going on in the moment um, knowing boredom just knowing it, really being close to it, transforms it into something interesting. And, um, you know, I want to say just one word about intimacy. You know, if you think about an intimate moment, you know, maybe, uh, you know, a young child or a lover, you know, where you're maybe touching their face very gently, you're very close to them. You're very close to, you know, you're, you're right there. You're very soft. There's there's no distance between the two of you, and this is the intimacy that we develop in meditation. It's a little bit of a love affair with 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 the moment, <laughs> you know. Just being very close, very close to that breath, very intimate, very very open to it, you know. And if you touch, if if the if what you're touching is a child that starts to cry because they're sad, you don't lose that intimacy because they're sad. You don't lose their intimacy because they're laughing. You know, the intimacy's there because of your willingness to be close, your willingness to be connected that way. And in the same way, you know, we can be intimate with our experience, being very close to it, whether it's laughter, whether it's uh, uh, a wonderful sense of peace permeating, or whether it's a really agitated mind, just like the agitated child. We can stay intimate. You know, in the um, 60s, um, uh, Aldous Huxley wrote a novel. I don't know if anybody ever read read it called Island. You know, it was like a utopian uh, novel. You know, I, I don't remember hardly any of it. You know, I, I was uh, pretty young. And, but I remember it had birds that flew around and, you know, they'd, they'd go near humans and go, pay attention, pay attention. <laughs> and um, it's one of the things that, that um, periodically shows up in my meditation when I'm distracted, you know. It's, uh, um, <clears throat> so, um, you know, many of you um, are familiar with MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. It's a um, uh, secular mindfulness meditation program that John Kabat-Zinn um, created in the, when did he do that, in the early 80s, um, you know, for the medical community to make mindfulness available to people who were uh, having, you know, major surgeries, uh, cancer diagnoses, terminal terminal illnesses, um, you know, and so it needed to be, you know, very very secular, very specific, 
um, and they would they do it in like sessions of eight um, uh, eight weekly trainings, and it encompassed you know uh, sitting meditation similar to what we do here, um, but it also included. Um, a guided uh, body scan that's done lying down where it guides you through relaxing each part of your body, connecting with each part of your body. And uh, it lasts about 45 minutes. It's a long, long guided scan. And um, at the time that it was just beginning to take off and gain a little bit of uh, renown in the medical world, um, the teachers at IMS, um, which is a retreat center in Massachusetts, um, they thought, well, you know, wow, we're, you know, we should know about this. So why don't we do the training? And so we know how it is. And so we know what people are doing, you know. And so several of the teachers went to this class where they were the only people who didn't have either a terminal illness or uh, something severe um, really going on in their lives. And you know they they did the sitting meditation, everything you know, and then they went to do the guided the guided body scan, and everybody in the room laid down and did this, and um, every one of the teachers fell asleep uh, none of the students, none of the other students and um you know, and one of the teachers was, you know, after that, she was reflecting back about it, and she realized that what had happened in in her practice, her, you know, after all the years of, like, lots of dukkha, lots of suffering, her practice has gone to a point, her, and her life, where everything was pretty good. Everything was, was pretty good. She'd sit and meditate. It was pretty pleasant. It was kind of nice. And she'd become really complacent. And um, and it's it's such a tricky, seductive little thing, you know, to just oh yeah, it's good enough, it's good enough, you know. Not that you know we don't want to mistake it with a mind that says that's never good enough, you know. But but there's this quality of it of of where we stop um, uh, we stop really paying attention to what's going on. And um, a definition of complacency is. Um, self-satisfaction, especially when accompanied by unawareness of actual dangers or deficiencies. So what does that mean in meditation? And it's um, not seeing um, the dangers of reinforcing certain habits of mind, which get strengthened when we become complacent. We just strengthen the part of our minds that don't pay attention. Um, <clears throat> the teachings guide us to allow our experience, to accept our experience, not to strive, not to push, not to, you know, to really be at ease with our experience. But again, that comes back to the issue of intimacy. When we allow, we accept we allow and accept something by being close to it, by being intimate with it. You know, we allow, accept that uh, my, my body hurts right now. Oh, yeah, my body's hurting. You know, we're close. I feel it. I'm not pushing it away. I'm right there with it. Uh, allowing it. I see the reality of it. Complacency says, um, um, oh yeah, it's hurting. I don't have to pay, I'm not going to pay attention to it. I'm not going to be near it. You know, it's a distancing ourselves from our experience. 
um, you know, the practice points to a balance between tranquility and alertness. We're trying to, you know, we kind of go to a meeting of those two, where the mind is really at peace, but really bright and alert, really curious. And the words that I like that, that have been like a guiding, uh, guiding words for me in my practice is from Ajahn Sumedho. He calls that affectionate curiosity. It's, it's the quality that we want to bring into those moments. That's what's missing in the complacency. Complacency doesn't have either the affection or the curiosity. It's just kind of nice or good enough. Um, like those first 15, 20 minutes of my sitting. Oh, yeah, that's good enough. You know, good enough. <laughs> um, You know, when um, some people, when they first start meditating, you know, they take to it right away and they like it right away and, and they have nice, pleasant sits right away. That wasn't me. You know, for me, meditation uh, was really hard earned. You know, the fact that I persevered was I just had a, such a strong intuition in, you know, in me, I had a certain level of, of trust that, that this was the way for me. Even though mostly my first, uh, quite a fairly long period of time was not very pleasant for me. Um, and so when I finally, finally started experiencing like this really nice periods of calm, you know, and they'd go into this nice, drifty, peaceful, calm. They're so nice. They're so nice. And there was so little sharpness or alertness, but it was such a, a pleasant change from, from my uh, agitated state uh, that I, I hung in there for a long time. And, you know, and it was very healing. You know, it was very healing for me to do that. And, um, and it allowed me to just be, feel enjoy being with myself you know but as my practice grew then i saw that uh there was more there was more and more engagement you know i don't want to make that wrong you know um but then i would find my patterns you know like i would be um like especially in retreat, you know, if any of you have done retreat, we have a lot of ups and downs on retreat. Sometimes we have, uh, you know, a lot of stuff can come up and sometimes really painful emotions would come up or really intense physical sensations would come up that weren't pleasant. You know, and, and you know, maybe I'd spend, um, you know, like spend a, cu- a couple of uh, sittings just crying or, or just feeling all sorts of painful feelings. And then it would be over. And it'd be like, ah. And then I'd reward myself with a fantasy, you know. It's like, okay, that was good enough. I worked hard. Fantasy time, you know. And, uh, you know, and I kind of had that pattern for a while where I'd get really complacent instead of like really, okay, now let's stay really engaged with what's next. Um, So it took a while for me to see that, to notice that. Um. You know, and as I mentioned, I really want to stress that, that as we meet complacency when it arises, to really notice the difference between that and not good enough. You know, it's, um, 
you know, like the, the type A personality or the workaholic personality, you know, they get a lot done, you know, they accomplish a lot, uh, but it's very tight, very tight, you know, and so, um, really want to caution that attitude in, in, in how we work with our minds. Um, we're more uh, aiming for the quality of a musician really enjoying playing their music, but really li- be really listening into it carefully, not doing it automatically. Really, you know, maybe they played that song a hundred times, but they still find something new in it. Or maybe the the runner, you know, really engaged in the running, and they might notice, oh yeah, my shoulders are a little tense. Let me relax them a little bit. Or maybe the artist who's, you know, painting, you know, and, and um, you know, they, they notice, oh, the sunset could use a little more red over here. You make adjustments, but the adjustments are just part of the play, part of the play, part of the engagement. It's not that there's something wrong that we have to fix. It's just an adjustment. Oh, we see that. Okay, that's what we do. There's no fixing needed. We don't need to fix complacency. We don't need to fix impatience. We just need to get to know them. And as we get to know them, as we engage in them, they reveal themselves, they transform. One of the real benefits of turning towards the challenging, towards the difficult in this practice. This practice says if it's hard, you turn towards it. You turn towards it. We turn towards the wonderful, we turn towards the difficult with the the equal interest. We can bring the equal interest to it. And by doing so, by developing patience, we increase our capacity to be with the difficult I like to say we become comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, we we can you know tolerate, be there for things that are very hard to tolerate and be there for. And and that capacity works both ways. It increases our ability to feel joy, to feel all the really wholesome, happy, enjoyable things in life. It allows that connection too. So we increase that that practice of, of really being here fully, full-heartedly into the moment. You know, and I'll say the last thing I'll say, you know, sometimes the magic word for me in my mind is to relax. Just relax. Let go. And at other times, the magic word for me is like a very strong here now, you know, just here now, show up, you know. And so different times we, we need like different little, um, this is my level of my pep talks to myself. Usually these little singular little little words, I've, I shortcut them, you know, that, um, you know, I might sit up straight or pay attention, you know, little bird, you know, pay attention, you know. Um, so, you know, Keep folding in everything that happens in the practice belongs. It all belongs. You know, the the deeper states of mind, you know, when you um, we develop samadhi the, the, in meditation where the mind's really steady, we call it a unification of the mind, where the mind is united. And it includes everything. 
And that's the thing about this practice. It does not exclude any part of who we are, any part of our experience. It all fits in there. It all belongs. Um, so I'd like to um, end with a poem by um, Rosemary Watola Traumer. I don't know if uh, you know her work. Um, <clears throat> So in in May, I planted a whole row of beans along the back fence of the garden, pushed each of the small white seeds one inch into the spring-damp soil. I waited weeks. Not one came up. Not one. I planted them again, planted them in twos, two inches apart. I waited weeks. Three came up. There were over a hundred seeds. I'm trying to tell you that sometimes what we wish for doesn't happen, though we do everything by the rules, that we have known success before, that we long for our plans to take for our plans to take root, to bloom, to fruit. Then all through the rows emerged. This spring, emerged this spring dozens of volunteer cosmos. This morning, a generous riot of pink, dark pink and white, fluttering in the spaces where I'd envisioned only the green of beans. So, thank you. <laughs>